how you're gonna get free this time I've been there and I've helped people try and find their way to sobriety and I always start off with saying like give yourself forgiveness alleviate the pressure find your way and make it yours and do it the way that you want to do it so that it means something to you and whether that means you have to relapse six times to get there that's what it means if, if it means that you get it the first try that's that's what it means and it's but don't put so much pressure on yourself to get through something that's it's a long game cry when you have to cry and smile when you need to smile but um make it yours and, and alleviate some of that pressure and and embrace embrace it because it is yours hmm. you know and and you're doing it you're doing it for yourself and then as you do it for yourself you'll you'll see how it affects other people and it'll become bigger than you and then you kind of you can almost kind of let go of the wheel a little bit and let god or, or the higher power kind of direct you as to the direction that it needs to go that is roger eels this week's guest on shreeponia's one breath podcast roger shares his struggle to get to that moment of clarity and arrive at sobriety through a number of relapses, treatment centers, feeling like a failure. But once he arrived, his story of courage, inspiration, his unapologetic faith, his willingness to reach out, and extend a helping hand to others in recovery and in life. Roger, thank you for your time. Thank you for your open heart and your courage to share your story with us, to share your life. I also want to mention and announce that Shreeponia will be engaging and offering a healing circle beginning Thursday, January 11th at becomingaheart.org. Join us for an hour or an hour and a half at 6 p.m. every Thursday night beginning January 11th, where we encourage one another along the path of recovery. Yeah, we're here today uh, with Roger Eels, my soon-to-be brother-in-law, next Thursday. Yes, yeah. So, but Roger, you and I have gotten a, a little bit acquainted and, and I've heard some of your story from your sister, Jen. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the one breath podcast focuses a great deal on the experience, strength and hope of people who have, you know, gone through the hell of addiction and, you know, in inappropriate use of different substances and then have come out the other side. And, you know, I, I just have been looking forward to sitting down with you like this, Roger, and getting to know you better as a person. And then, you know, um, just spending some time having a conversation about your journey in this world of recovery and, and, and life as a dad and a lifeguard and a big wave surfer and uh, 
So if you've got three or four hours, we'll, we can get into this. <laughs> All right. Cool. Cool. I wish I had three or four hours. You said, yeah. yeah so yeah. Yeah. I'm on the clock. Uh, yeah. Off the clock. Right. And, uh, we'll see how long she naps. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's begin with, you know, where, where did your, where did you step into the world of drugs and alcohol and how, how old were you? My earliest, my earliest memory of, of, of drinking and mm -hmm. drugs and alcohol, it started with alcohol and, uh, we were on a family trip to Yosemite and my parents had, had gotten tickets to one of these like performance dinners where it was, um, it was in the Yosemite hall and it was a big kind of like to do. And I can't put my, my finger on the time era of the performance, but it was definitely something of like 1800s. And it was, it seemed, it seemed Gaelic. And um, so there was a big dinner party that went down. And then after the dinner party, my parents decided to go back to the cabin and my siblings Jennifer, Shandon, Rodney, and I, uh, we went out. And I think, I'd imagine I was 10 years old, maybe between 10 and 12, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And I remember being on a tram that was taking us maybe back to the cabin at that point. Maybe I think we hung out at the, at the dinner hall for a while. And uh, siblings handed me a bottle of red wine. And they said, here, take a swig. And I took a swig of it and it was gross. And I kind of like pulled away mid swig and it went all down the front of what I had was like a tuxedo on a white shirt. Oh, and they were like, oh no, like that's bad. Like, <laughs> and I can remember like some of the siblings being like, no, you spilled the hooch. Oh no, mom and dad are going to know that you, you partook. And um, so that was like my, my very first memory of actually like drinking alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, you know, time goes by when you're that age where, you know, maybe it's at a party, like a family function. Um, my brother and I might, might steal a wounded soldier that's laying around and, and pifle off a couple sips of beer and uh, kind of did that through the early teenage years until I jumped into high school and then in high school is kind of really where I started um, going after it a bit more um, freshman year of high school homecoming we got a limo we got blasted there was a guy down the street there was a homeless dude down the street at Rob Field that uh, we would go and give money to and he would go buy us booze so we went, gave him the money, got a bunch of booze, got in the limo, um, you know, finished our booze. And then we were, I was already well into surfing and surfing for better or for worse has a pretty close tie to, to marijuana or to pot or to weed or whatever you want to call it. And um, so that, that, that dance, that homecoming I mentioned, because I remember we bought an ounce of weed. My friend Joey and Eve and I bought an ounce of weed. 
We got the homeless person to buy us a bong from the black, which is down in OB on Newport Avenue. Um, all of this took place in my little neighborhood, which is a suburb of San Diego. It's Point Loma Ocean Beach. Mm-hmm. And Ocean Beach is a pretty eclectic neighborhood. Um, in the 70s, it was run by the Hells Angels. And one of the main drags, Voltaire Street, was uh, a bunch of apartment buildings. And um, from what I've gathered through the history was where a lot of the Hells Angels were um, producing and selling off meth. And so we had a big biker influence. We had a big hippie influence. Um, and we had that beach culture influence. So we bought a, an ounce of weed, which is a lot for, you know, mm-hmm. I think we're what 14 years old. And, um, and we got a bong and we finished our booze. We went to the dance. And then I remember that, that night, my parents had a back house. They had a big acre of land up in the, like kind of towards the peninsula of the point. So they, they bought a house back in the early seventies and it was a small house, but it was a big piece of land. And so they had a little back house. And so I think we did one of those things where we all told the parents that we were staying at each other's houses. And then we snuck into the back house and we just smoked that ounce of weed almost until the sun came up just like bong load after bong load after bong load mm. until we basically like passed out in the back house. And uh, from then on, it was like every weekend uh, we were, we were doing kind of a pretty much near blackout drinking and, and then a lot of weed. Um, and then the weed started to come in as a daily thing. Uh, and then the progression from there was kind of like, Oh, I turned 16. I got a car. And now I had a little more freedom and I could, I could drive away and smoke weed. And, um, I ended up having a carpool. And so I go pick up the kids that I wanted to be in our carpool. And then we would drive to the, to the base of our high school and we'd smoke weed before school. Hmm. And then the first time it really became a problem, so to speak, was, my senior year of high school, towards the end of our junior year, we started smoking weed at lunch. And we found a tree that was kind of off behind these bungalows over by the football field. And we'd all meet up there during our lunch break. And we'd smoke weed at lunch for the first like five minutes, get nice and high. Then we'd kind of, you know, do whatever kids do, I guess. We'd kind of fuck off for better word. Um, mm-hmm. And then all through my senior year, we started doing that. And inevitably what ended up happening was I was leaving school, going to surf practice. And I was smoking weed on the way to surf practice. A mom saw my car and she called the school the next day. They, when I got to school, I pulled into the lot cause I was a carpool. So we had stopped below smoke weed and then I park on campus. And since I parked on campus, they could search my car. Mm. And so they searched my car and they found like a plethora of preferenalia, you know, they, there was bubbler pipes, steam rollers, bongs, weed, hash, just all this stuff that was kind of stored in there. And so that was the first time I, really kind of gotten in trouble outside of like maybe my parents catching me drunk or a, or a, a friend's parents catching me intoxicated and I was expelled from school. 
And so then that really introduced me to like the first drug rehabilitation because as a part of the school's requirement to come back and graduate, that happened probably in the first quarter of my senior year. Um, they said I needed to take 16 weeks and see a drug counselor once a week, pass a series of drug tests and do some community service while attending a, kind of like a bridged at home school is called futures. So I went in mm -hmm. twice a week to get my coursework done. As I'm listening to you, I, because I remember those years in my life, you know, uh -huh. and, and, and I, I look back, back at the, like the emotional state I was in. D do you recall? I, I wasn't angry. Mm. Mofo when I was a teenager, I, I just was in, you know, in rebellion, man. Um, and so a lot of what occurred for me was fueled by that emotional state yeah. way, way of being. Do you, uh -huh. do you recall what you were experiencing emotionally? Were you going through things that you were trying to get away from or was it just party on dude? <laughs> uh, mine was, I can definitely identify it. Mine was, directly tied to insecurity mm. um i think i think part of it was that like my brother was you know nearly three years older than me and uh and then my two sisters are 12 and 14 years older than me and then i was the last you know the baby child of the of the four and i had open heart surgery when i was 13 years old I was always really small, I was really short. I went into high school at about four, nine. Um, aesthetically, you know, I had blonde hair. I was a surfer kid and I, I think I, I fit the bill as kind of the California surfer kid that was pretty handsome and tan. And um, so I was told by my brother's friends that were girls at the time, like, oh, you're so cute. You're so handsome, this, that, and the other. Um, and then there was a lot of like, oh, you have so much potential. You're really personable. I was really outgoing. Um, but I think it was a more of a persona. I feel a little bit like I could relate to the tortured comedian who's got mm -hmm. this wonderful act and is super hilarious, but then maybe behind that, they've got some demons that they're dealing with and they put that out there so that everyone sees them a certain way and they don't really let them see that. And I think I was that kind of classic, like maybe good looking, short statured, um, super insecure. And so to kind of mask the insecurity, the weed and the alcohol made me kind of bigger than life and kind of the class clown and was willing really to do, to do anything he told me, I kind of just did it, you know, to make you laugh or to to get a rise out of you. And, um, I mean, my first two days of high school, I was in the principal's office for doing silly things, but I can remember like I, I had, there was like all these pebbles that lined the quad and my brother was a junior and I'm a freshman. So I was impressing his friend group and I was like winging these rocks into the quad and the teachers caught me, took me to the principal's office. The next day we had a chain link fence and they had those, <clears throat> they had those boards that went down them 
And I took one out and I was like chasing people and kind of slapping them on the butt with it. And uh, so that was my first two days of high school, which landed me in the principal's office. And, and that I was, I wasn't intoxicated. I was totally sober, <clears throat> but I think it's like, I was doing that sober when I got intoxicated, it was tenfold. You know, I was the one trying to jump from a two story building to whatever, uh, you know, into the pool at a, at a house party or um, those kinds of behaviors that I think were kind of feeding that, that early days of, of what would later become an addiction to, to a feeling. You remember, you remember the point in your life when things changed from, you know, this, this is good time, Roger, to, I can't stop Roger. I wish there was like a point that I could put my finger on, but it, it was more of just a progression. Um, and it went, you know, from weed and those first couple of years of high school to then, you know, cocaine. Um, and then I kind of became after high school, I was like, I call, I was kind of called myself like the garbage pail. My nickname was red, which was Roger Eels doser. And so it was kind of like, whatever you had, I would dose. And, um, and I didn't, I didn't have a lot of fear. And so I didn't, I didn't fear the substances like some kids do or might have. And um, so I, I went head on with all of it. And I think it became the progression to where it was like, I, I couldn't socialize or I couldn't do things without it. And my first real like daily addiction came with the marijuana and needing to be high to kind of do anything. And I remember like surfing, for me, it was such a big passion here in San Diego. We're kind of, we're kind of locked in by an urban environment. And the only way you can kind of access nature is you got to either go east an hour and get into the mountains. Or for me, I lived on the coast. I could go five minutes and jump in the ocean. And the ocean, <clears throat> I think some people see it just as a big body of water, but I mean, it's, it's as feral as any forest you've ever walked into, right? There's dolphins, there's whales, there's sharks, there's fish, there's all sorts of sea life. And, and I was interacting with that. And for me, it, it, I recognized it when I couldn't go surfing without being high. So mm -hmm. I would put off the waves are good, but I would put off jump. I check the surf and I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't have a bag of weed. Like I need to go find a bag of weed. Um, I'm 40 years old. So, you know, when I'm 20, 20 years ago, it was harder to find a bag of weed. I couldn't go to a dispensary. I couldn't, I had to have my dealer and, um, <clears throat> there was times where I would miss a surf session searching for this bag of weed. You know, I would go to monkey's house. And he'd be like, I'm dry, I'm out. You know, and then I'd go to Bissell's house and he'd be like, I'm dry, I'm out. I'd go to Trompus's house, he'd be like, I'm dry, I'm out. You know, and I'd, <clears throat> I'd spend hours going around the neighborhood to all the different people that had weed and, until the point to where, like, I'd be driving to, like, you know, 45 minutes away just to 
to get a bag from somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody, you know, and, and then I would get high and then it would be like, Oh, there's no time to surf. It's getting dark. I gotta, I gotta go home. Um, and when I look back at it, I'm like, well, that's, I'm like, my priorities were starting to become askew. So yeah. And then, you know, and then, I mean, it progressed, it progressed slowly, but it progressed quick. And I wasn't a, a daily drinker because I couldn't surf and drink, but I could surf and smoke weed and surfing was my number one dream was to be a professional surfer and get paid to do so. And, um, so I, I would party hard at night, but during the day I would kind of hold off and, and use the weed to kind of give me my, my fix. And then at night is when I would really tie it on. And for me, it was, you know, I, I did all those other drugs, but really it was like a bag of weed, a bag of Coke and a lot of booze. And I was set like that was, mm -hmm. that was my nest egg for sure. Yeah. I, you know, as a musician, I had the opposite. I could, I could play and drink, but uh -huh. if I smoked weed, <laughs> I was, I was totally fucked, man. I, did, yeah. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't remember chord progressions, melodies of songs. It was really, it was, oh yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I just, so, but that, but that willingness, what I, what I relate to Rogers, that willingness to compromise the things that I love the most, right? man, that came and it didn't go away for a long, long time in my life. You know, mm -hmm. I didn't get sober till I was 56. So right. I compromised a lot of the time with my kids, with, you know, with relationships, mm -hmm. but man, it, that is such a common story. And for, you know, someone who's listening that might be in that experience right now, of damn i just find myself checking out of everything right you're in good company man you yeah know? you're in good company yeah and, and that that you know that that coming to that place of wow i i i, I have an inkling that there's a different way to live this life mm -hmm. is such a gift how did how did that show up for you? What, what occurred in your life that brought you to that? Because I think you've been in recovery or in treatment for 20 years. Yeah. Like, I mean, the process started 20 years ago. Wow. I've been sober for 14. Yeah. Um, so for a good, you know, six of those years, it was in and out of the program and mm -hmm. it started at 20. And I have to say that my, my dad was a big contributor. Um, my sister, Jennifer was a big contributor. Um, and I think sub subconsciously or consciously, I knew I wasn't living up to my potential and I knew I was self-sabotaging quite a bit on a, a number of events. Um, so when I was 20 years old, you know, I, I kind of dove into the, the cocaine, the cocaine pretty hard. <clears throat> and between 18 and 20, I told my dad, you know, I'm going to go to junior college. I'm going to do these world qualifying series events for the surfing. I had sponsors. Um, 
I was 20 years old and I'd done enough events. We had regional events that could get you into the U.S. Open. So I did enough events to get into the U.S. Open. And at the time, I was sponsored by Volcom Clothing, which is a major brand. And they're paying for all my events. They're paying for travel. Um, I had product coming every two months. And I had other sponsors, too, that were augmenting some things and Converse shoes. And so I was making a little bit of money. I was doing local pro-am events and doing pretty well and winning money in those. Um, and this was in the 90s. And in the 90s, the surf culture here and the surf industry was booming. There was, you know, that was the golden era, they say, of paid surfing was probably between 1998 and 2006. And that's when Quicksilver, Billabong, Rip Curl, these surf industry, like, kind of mega brands started making a ton of money, billions of dollars, you know, you know, anywhere between three to $5 billion. And they were paying the top end team riders, you know, 500 to a million dollars a year. And that trickled all the way down to a regional team rider like myself could make 30 grand just by surfing local events and getting some content for them in local, we had local magazines and, and what have you. But um, I mentioned that because I, I made the U S open, which was, you know, a, a big deal. And Volcom had paid for me to be in the contest. <clears throat> and I was on a bender and I totally forgot the dates of my heat mm -hmm. when mm -hmm. the contest had started. And I got a phone call from my team manager, um, Jack Morrissey. And I was sitting in a garage in Claremont and it was early morning and I had been up all night and I was still, you know, doing blow and drinking whiskey and smoking weed. And, you know, he called me, he said, Roger, your heat's, you know, an hour away. Where are you? And I was like, Oh, I'm not going to make it. And he was like, what? And I was like, I'm, I'm not, it was in Huntington beach, which is like a two hour drive. If I would have gotten the car and drove, I, I would have definitely, probably ended up with a DUI. I ended up with a DUI as it was throughout the, the process, but, and I should add too, that's another story. Um, and in that moment kind of sunk in when I got off the phone, I was like, Whoa, like the whole thing that I dreamed about doing, I'm just giving away to, for this feeling and for this high. Mm. And, um, mm. Throughout that time, my dad would kind of kick me out of the house <clears throat> and my mom and dad would kick me out and kind of put my clo clothes out front. And then I'd go to my girlfriend's house who, um, whose mom was an al alcoholic and she lived with her mom and she was an addict alcoholic. So they, you know, were totally accepting and they totally accepted the lifestyle that I was partaking in because they partook right alongside. I was mm -hmm. getting mom bags of coke and whatever and so um i would go live there for a while and then um you know every time i'd come home all beaten up from a bender um i think my dad didn't know what to do but what he would do is he'd kind of drag me to the mirror and he'd say look in the mirror like is this is this who you want to be is this mm -hmm. what you're like is this what you're standing on is this who you are and um it had a big enough impact to where at one point, you know, I, <clears throat> I wasn't really making enough money and I was kind of going in and out of the girlfriend's house. And 
my friends had gone off to college and I was hanging out with kids here in OB that, you know, were either weed dealers or, you know, they were kind of doing the, the caribou from Northern California to ocean beach, um, trimming weed and selling pounds of weed. And, uh, I said, you know, I, I got a, I got a problem and I need to go to rehab. And so then my parents backed that. And that was the first time I went to rehab and I went to Betty Ford and it was a 28 day stay at 20 years old. Mm -hmm. And when I was in rehab and I got clean and I was doing my, my work in AA within the rehab facility, I remember some older guys were there. It's funny. One of the lead singers from ZZ top was in there with me (laughs) And he's like, you're 20 years old and like, you're so fun to be around sober. Like, why do you even need to drink or, or do drugs? And that, that stuck with me. Um, and then when I got out of rehab, I turned 21, I think like seven months later, I stayed sober for about that, that 28 days. And then another like four months after that. So maybe around five months sober. And, um, when I turned 21, I just was like, there's no way I'm not, I kind of did the rehab stint to also get, (laughs) to get my parents off my back a little bit, you know, and get the community that was starting to kind of close in on me. That was kind of like, dude, you got a problem. You're always wasted. You're always high on Coke. The friends are starting to be like, man, I I don't really want to hang out with you. So I did that rehab with no intention in my heart that like, I have a problem is more like, I have a problem. Let's like get these people backed off of me. And when I turned 21, I picked up right where I left off. I remember that night, like starting to drink and then a couple of drinks in called the Coke dealer, went and he was like, dude, you just got out of rehab. He knew who I was. Like we were at that point friends, right? Right. Quotes. Um, He's like, you can't tell anyone I'm selling you this eight ball of Coke. I'm like, no, I'm not going to tell anyone. Like, I'll just tell them I got it from someone else, you know, because I think being a little bit high, I was a big fish in a small pond. It's a small community, a small beach community. And I was surfing at the top of the community's level. Like I was definitely one of the best surfers in the community. So that brought a lot of attention to me. Um, There was also a lady, Julie Klein, who uh, made surfboard bags and has been around forever. She just got inducted into the San Diego surfing hall of fame. And she Mm kind of made a, made a point to kind of drive me into sobriety and like made life really hard for me. Whenever she saw me around the community, she was always calling me out. She was like my second mom constantly pestering me, you know? And, um, and so I think that, pressure made me do that and that's why it kind of then at 21 I went back into it and I went until I was about 23 and then it got the pressure had surmounted again you know two years later everybody's kind of focused on me again and it's back to Rogers got a problem and um and that put me into rehab again and that time I went to a 90-day inpatient program And that one, I stayed by then. Jennifer was well into sobriety. 
And so she was very supportive and helping and came down and visited me a couple times. And the cool thing about rehab is that it, the whole family gets brought into it at some point or another. And you do like a kind of group therapy with the whole family. And, um, <clears throat> I stayed sober for a year after the 30 day inpatient and I moved to Newport for this, for this inpatient program. And, uh, and I really enjoyed it. It was very structured. It was based on AA. I woke up early. I made my bed. I met with my housemates and we read the big book first thing at five 30 in the morning. And then we went on and did our uh, program throughout the day. And then towards the end of it, I started going to school up in, uh, up in Costa Mesa and I went to a junior college and I've been sober for maybe four months. And I told my parents, like, I, I don't want to move home. I want to stay up here. And I, I stayed up there and I finished the semester and, um, that year I won the national championship, the collegiate national championship in surfing. And so I got like a big positive reinforcement for my sobriety. I was like, wow, look at this. Like I stayed sober. I've held a job. I worked at the Balboa, the Balboa Bay club, which is like a really high end Newport, um, yacht club. I mean, there was like, uh, Mark Sanchez from, USC who played for the Jets was staying there one time and he was staying there with uh, Paris Hilton. And I held that job and I had good friends and I did good for that entire year. And then that national title kind of was like a big reinforcing, like you, you completed all your coursework, you got passing grades, you won the national title. Like there's something to be said for the trajectory of your life mm. at this point. Mm -hmm. and then I took kind of that momentum and I went to Hawaii and I stayed at the Volcom house on the North shore, which they called kind of the proving grounds for surfers. And Volcom has two houses right at pipeline. And if you don't know what pipeline is pipelines, kind of the historic Hawaiian wave. It's a really hollow, big, powerful wave. And, uh, Volcom's houses are right on the beach and all the team riders get to stay there. And so you kind of get, front door service to the best wave in the world in front of all surf media. And I was, I was doing really well. And then, um, Bruce Irons and Andy Irons, Bruce Irons and Andy Irons are two historic surfers. Uh, <clears throat> there's a good documentary called kiss by God. Yeah. We, you know, you, I, Jennifer probably told you that part of Shreeponia every month we screen a film okay, and then have a panel discussion nice. afterwards and yeah. kissed by God was like our second or third. Oh, no way. Film that we screened. That's awesome. And, uh, so, so you knew those guys. I didn't know them. I was staying in the Volcom house and Bruce was Volcom's main team writer. He's making $1.5 million a year. He's like a celebrity. Right. And Andy, it was Bruce's birthday and they threw it at the Volcom house. They threw a huge party for him. And I remember there was a door that was closed and I was so curious what was behind that door. And I opened the door and I look in and it's Andy and Bruce and some other like corporate big wigs from Volcom and Billabong. And they've got a huge mirror and a huge mound of cocaine. And they're like, shut the fucking door, get the fuck out of here. And they slam the door 
and immediately I go and I just to the keg, fill up a beer. Next thing you know, I find this guy, Courtney Brown from Australia and we get a bag of Coke. That was my relapse after being sober for a year. Um, and I'm at the Volcom house and the next day I grabbed my AA book, my big book, and I rode my bike up the path and I kind of crawled under some banyan trees and read the book and I'm shaking like, damn it. Like, Oh no. You know? And I felt so much shame and guilt. And like, I was really, really, really upset with myself. Yeah. Um, and I relapsed then and, and that relapse went for a, a good while. Um, and then it put me at about 24 years old. And I, and my dad was kind of like trying to figure out how to, you know, he's tried rehab. So he took me to a lifeguard tryout and threw me in the ocean and said, you think you're the best waterman around? Like go swim this, this test and, and show all these lifeguards that you're the guy. And I swam the lifeguard test and I passed and I'd done it two other times. I did it when I was 19 and I did it when I was 22 and I would do the swim test, pass it. And then I would take the interview and I was selected as an alternate the other two times. And I went to the EMR emergency response course. And in there, they're like, the kids would be like, Hey, like we got to do a physical, they're going to drug test and everything. And I'd quit. And I'm like drug test. No, like <laughs> I'm not passing a drug test. I smoke weed every day. So for some reason, this third time I, I stuck it out and I got the job. And I became a seasonal lifeguard here in San Diego, oceanfront seasonal lifeguard. And I met a lot of people that were lifeguards that um, had a really healthy lifestyle. And um, I think that I started seeing this healthy lifestyle and, and some of these other kids or young adults that were doing, you know, they were, they were lifeguarding and they're going to the college in the, in the school year. And then they lifeguard the summer season and then they'd go back to school and during the summer we do all these physical enduring events and they would eat really healthy and they're kind of on the forefront of like nutrition and taking care of their bodies and that first year I still partied there's a couple nights where like I went full bender straight into work and I remember one of the one of my supervisors came up to me and he's like well I'm kind of foggy I had a couple glasses of wine last night I'm like I've been up all night. Like I was fucking doing huge rat tails before I came into work, you know, that's pretty polar opposite, you know, like <clears throat> kind of like, wow, like if you're foggy from two glasses of wine, like what am I doing kind of deal. Um, and then I met a girl that lived in upstate New York, um, Elizabeth May. And uh, it's funny, you meet all these people in these, various chapters and certain ones play a pretty impactful kind of role in your life. And that's why I mentioned kind of Julie Klein and, and, but Elizabeth was in my EMT class. And so you get an EMT cert, which is an emergency medical technician and you get a pay raise. And she was in my EMT class and we met and then, we, you know, we started dating and her background was completely different than mine. She was from upstate New York. She went to Cornell University. She was in her EMT <laughs> class to kind of prep for her public health master's at San Diego State. And she was going on to be a doctor. 
and she was one of four and she was the youngest of four too. And her siblings pretty similar to mine, but, um, we're all like the, the house was just heavy academics. The dad was a doctor who did a bunch of grant work for migrant farmers in upstate New York that were doing blueberry farming. Um, her brother was a professor at UCLA, graduated from Harvard. Her sister was, a um, a nurse practitioner and went to USD and then her. And so they were kind of like, you know, like you're 24, like you're still riding this idea of being a surfer. You should probably come up with a backup plan and um, you should probably go yeah. back to college. You, you must've felt right at home. Yeah. <laughs> right at home for sure. Right at home. Um, oh man, Roger. That's wow. Yeah. And so they ended up, she kind of talked me into going back to school. And she's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I think it'd be cool to be a teacher. I've always got along with kids. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't sober when I was dating her, but I was definitely battling, you know, I was having dry periods and then I would get really wasted and then dry periods and then get really wasted. And then one night we partied really hard and, uh, we're down in OB and I remember like this homeless person in, in one of the shopping outcoves had like rolled over and the, a bottle of pills slipped out of the pocket. And I just was drunk and not knowingly, I like walked up, popped open the pills and ate them. Like not knowing anything about what the pills were just thinking that, Oh, like homeless person, it's gotta be Xanax. It's gotta be like, maybe Cody, maybe, maybe something that's going to give me a ride. And Elizabeth was like, Whoa, that's next level stuff. Like, so that night she kind of put down the ultimatum and she's like, I ain't going to hang out with you. If this is, if this is your program. And so then I, I was like, no, no it's not. And I, I went to, um, I started going to meetings and I found a sponsor and my sponsor that I found was, um, a guy named Rob Brockman who ran an outpatient program. And so then I met with my parents and I'm like, this is going to need a little more help. Like I need more accountability. I couldn't just go to AA at 24 and um, seemingly stay sober. So I went to the outpatient program and I stayed sober until we broke up and we broke up at 27 and I was going to meetings and doing my thing. And through that period, I, finished all my, 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 uh, prerequisites to transfer from community college to, uh, university that took, you know, I started when I was 19. So that was six years of going in and out of community college in and out of community college. And then for Christmas, <clears throat> we had a white elephant and Elizabeth, Caitlin, and her dad got together and they wrote me an admission letter to USF. And I remember we were in upstate New York and they're like, they're, they came down to a white envelope and like, I think earbuds. And I was like, I really want the earbuds. And they're like, no, you want the white envelope. And so they ended up basically be like, take, you're taking the white envelope. You can't have the earbuds. And I opened the envelope and it was um, an admission letter that they had written on for me knowing by then I'm, I'm a pretty open person. So 
I tell people everything. And so they knew my whole story frontwards and backwards and they used it at that point. I was 26 and they used, they used it to be like, Hey, he, I had like the bare minimum GPA, but they're like, he has a lot of like emotional intelligence. He has a lot of um, kind of wisdom that other college kids aren't going to bring to the classroom. And they just wrote this beautiful three page letter and I turned it into USF with my application. And then they're like, now you need to go meet with the dean. And they kind of coached me through it. And I got accepted to USF, which is the University of San Francisco. And I moved up there. And when I moved up, um, the distance broke us up. We were kind of going in two different directions. <clears throat> and then when I broke up with her, I started partying again. I kind of couldn't take it. And um and like they said, like, I didn't, when I would relapse, it wasn't like I would go out and have a few beers and then come home and fall asleep. Like I was, I can remember driving around the tenderloin with a bottle of wine and I, you know, buying, uh, I was buying Oxycontin. And I remember I went to a USF party and I get in the living room where everyone's raging and I pull out three pills of Oxycontin and I crush them up and I say, Hey, you guys got any foil? And they're like, what? And I grab foil and I start freebasing the Oxycontin and they're like, Holy shit. Like you got issues, bro. Like, what are you doing? We're like college kids having some drinks, you know, and you're freebasing Oxycontin. And, uh, so that went on and I could hide it from my family cause I was in San Francisco so no one had any idea. I didn't have any of my friends from Ocean Beach. So I didn't have that community pressure. <clears throat> and then <clears throat> 27, I come back for the summer season. Every summer I'd come back in lifeguard. And <clears throat> I'd always wait until that last two-week window to try and stop cold turkey, get my system clean so I could go to lifeguard and pass a drug test. <clears throat> and uh <clears throat> my parents went on a long Europe trip. So I had their house and I went out on a Wednesday night and I was like, I got to stay sober. Like I'm now lifeguarding at this point, the season's underway and I go to a bar and I got completely wasted and I met my wife and Kelly was in the bar that night. She was drinking a pitcher with one of her friends and I approached her and I talked to her and we danced all night. And then on the way home, my friend and I got a half ounce of Coke and I was like, Hey, we've got this really nice house that we're house sitting. You should come over. And she's from Pennsylvania. And she's like, Oh, I'm interested. I've never been in a house in San Diego. I've been in apartments in PV where I've been living, but I've never been in a house. And so she agreed to come and, uh, she is three years younger than me. She's 25. And so she partied and we partied that night until the morning and she went to, she like passed out in the guest bed or something like that. And she woke up in the morning and she found me in the same place that she left me. And she's like, Whoa, like that's kind of odd, you know? And I'm like, I can't drive you home. Like, uh, sorry. So one of my friends gave her a ride home. And then that bender was Wednesday night. And it was, Friday night that I went into convulsions. I'd just been doing cocaine on that half ounce for, you know, 
all night Wednesday, all day Thursday, Thursday night, all night into Friday. Friday, I can remember is like sometime around midday that I was, you know, in my parents' bathroom and I was convulsing and, um, and I was like, cool, like I had overdosed. And so I crawled into my parents' bed and I slept for two days and I woke up and I was like, I'm done with this. Like I, I'm not like, I'm, there was a lot of dysfunction through those years. Like when I was in a relapse, there was a lot of dysfunction in the sense that like, you know, I, I had at one point got in my car and gotten a car accident where I sideswiped three other cars and totaled my car and got a DUI. There was another car accident where I was Rochambeauing stop signs. Like I was like, oh, I'm going to stop at this one and run the next one. Stop at this one, run the next one. I ran one. Full collision, went through the windshield. Should have got my second DUI. And I'm not totally sure what happened because then at that time, that would have put me probably in like a felony account because there was another car involved and there was multiple injuries. And I remember getting breathalyzed at the hospital and being like, they're like, oh yeah, you just blew a 1.2. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. Like, um, you know, that's my second DUI. And I think the other driver may have been intoxicated too, or the paperwork wasn't filled out appropriately, but, or maybe I had a higher power that was looking out for me, but that DUI never surfaced months and months went by. I never got paperwork. It literally just like disappeared. And uh, there was another time where I drank a, a big bottle of codeine. And I think my sister Shandon came over in the morning to, to my parents' house to, to grab something or do something. And my lips were blue and I was totally incoherent. She couldn't wake me up. And she thought I was like in a coma of sorts. Um, <clears throat> so fast forward after the convulsions, I wake up. And I go straight back to meetings and I start going to AA. And then at that point, they talk about that travel where like in your brain, you might know you're an alcoholic drug addict, but in your heart, you haven't accepted it. And I, I know there was about 10 days after that, where it, I felt the transition kind of drop down and it wasn't in my brain anymore. It was in my heart. Like, look, mm -hmm. like, this is something you have to accept. This is something you're, you're just going to have to love yourself for. And I told on myself to all my friends that were lifeguarding with me at the time. And I'd started to move away from the friend group that was drinking and doing drugs a lot and hanging out with more lifeguards. <clears throat> and they held me accountable. I went to meetings. I got back with my sponsor, RB and the first date I went on after that with Kelly was a breakfast. And she's like, this is weird. Like the first time we met, we were in a bar getting drunk and now we're at a breakfast. Like she had never really been on a date like that herself. And then as the summer progressed, we were dating and we'd go to barbecues or we'd go out and friends would be like, Hey Rod, like, you know, someone we'd walk in and they'd be like, you want a beer? You want a beer? Roger, you want cranberry juice? You want a seven up? What do you want? You know, and she started to pick up on it. And then I told her, I'm like, look, I'm an alcoholic. I go to AA meetings and I, I can't drink. And uh, kind of another divine intervention, Kelly, instead of 
kind of pushing me away and being like, well, I want to still party and drink. She loved me for who I was at that time and for the courage I had to kind of put that out there. And so she started to support. We'd go out to a bar to meet friends and she would, she's like, tell me how I can help you. And I was like, Mm -hmm. you know, things I really don't like are social settings. Like people asking me if I want to drink. Um, if we walk into a bar, I hate walking up to the bar to get a drink. Um, if you could, if you get me a drink, make it look like a cocktail. So people kind of think I'm drinking and they don't ask me why I'm not drinking. And, um, what I noticed is that as I was staying sober at these young ages, if I was sober and other people were drinking, they would kind of feel offended or they would feel like, Ooh, maybe I have a problem. And so they didn't, they would kind of like, as a defense mechanism, they would kind of make me feel insufficient in a way, if that makes any sense. They would be like, why aren't you drinking? Oh, you have a problem. What's wrong with you? This, that, and the other. So to avoid all that conversation, I would get, you know, my common drink was like, a seven up with a splash of cranberry and a lime in a bucket glass. And now no one knows that I'm not drinking. They're just like, Oh, he's got a cocktail too. Um, I'd smoke cigarettes and kind of lean on that. I mean, to this day, there's, there's still, uh, like there's Zin, which is like a nicotine salt pouch. And there's times when like, if we're going out to a social environment, I'll buy it a can of that and put one in my lip and, um, I'll sip on a tonic water. And, uh, I mean, it's hard, right. And it's hard to stay sober. And, um, I still crave a head change more than anything. And when the weather's like it is today, when it's really sunny and it's high pressure and there's no wind and the waves are perfect, I crave weed more than anything. I mean, the last, Mm. just the last two weeks I've like had, to make an obligation like this is a, a good example is yesterday we were doing some lifeguard training and uh you know it's nearing the end of my shift and i'm like okay like i'm probably gonna have 30 minute window before i go home like i could probably just drive to the dispensary and get a little bit of weed and then i have three days off and it's nice weather and i can smoke weed and And I could probably like sauna or run or sweat it out before I went back to work. Like that's how my head still, still operates. And so I caught, I catch myself doing that. And I just, I text my wife and I say, I'll be home at this time. And then it kind of eliminates that window. I'm like, all right, now I have to go straight home. Um, Or now I have two friends that I used to party really heavily with and I'll call them. Oh man, I'm, like, I want to get high right now, you know? And they'll be like, dude, I don't think that's a good idea. Like you have three kids, you've got a full-time job, you have a house, like you've, you've moved out of that spot 13 years ago where the community is putting pressure on you to get sober to now the community's holding you up. And they're like, look at what Roger's done. Look at where he's come from. Multiple car crashes, multiple DUIs, you know, prolific drug use and now he's sober he's got three kids he graduated college he's got this this beautiful life that everybody kind of dreams of and like you're what we're all looking at and i'm kind of like oh 
oh shit i got a lot of responsibility to uphold that mm. so yeah that i mean that in itself can become pressure yes if that's what we live into if we <clears throat> if i'm living to uh appear a certain way for anybody else man right I, eventually it it will just mess with my head totally and, and i'm not authentic and um you know and and i you know i occasionally have squirrely thoughts of well maybe i can get it right this time you know mm -hmm. they don't last very long but but i do what 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 you do too roger i pick the phone up you know yeah and and then i work with guys that are in early sobriety and you know i've got a guy that's just 4 days out of deschutes county spent right. 90 years, you know for probation violation and you know there are there are actions we can take to help abate those cravings but mm -hmm. when they show up what the hell you know if we if we're not engaged at least for me if i'm not engaged every day in my recovery I never know when a good idea might take me, take me out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just that mindset is, you know, uh, it, it is a persistent son of a bitch, man. Mm -hmm. And it's constantly reinforced. I feel like in society, you know, like I, it's hard when you're young and trying to get sober and alcohol is so celebrated because everywhere you go, it's the first thing people ask you, right? Hey, can I get you a drink? No. Okay. And sometimes it's like, no, I'm, I'm too good at drinking. I can't yeah. do that. You right. know, and then they kind of get the picture and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, and they I back off a little bit. And I've done that now. I'm more comfortable now than when I was younger. In my 20s, I couldn't do it. I found it in my 30s and... Uh, I just turned 40 and now it's easy for me to walk into a social setting and, um, Hey, can I get you a drink? No. And I I'm right away. Like, no, I'm too good at it. What? Yeah. I've been sober yeah. for 15 years. Yeah. Like, I, oh, I've cool. had, yeah. I've had people ask, you know, Greg, you don't drink. No, I don't. Well, why? And I learned a response and it was, well, my wife wants me home for Christmas dinner. You yeah. Know? And if I drink today, I don't know if I'll make it. And it could be in July. I just, I have no clue. I don't, I know where it's going to lead me. I just don't know how far. Right. And uh, yeah. so to find like your, your response to have a little bit of humor, lighten right. that moment up a little bit. It just seems to help, man. Totally. It helps it's me. It's the delivery, right? It's the delivery. It's it it isolates it to me. They don't feel like I'm coming at them, you know, right. And there's no anger in it. And it, and it's, it's that delivery that I found has mm. tremendously helped me through those social situations. Yeah. And then to be honest, you know, RB always tells me you hang out at a barbershop, you're going to get a haircut. Yeah. And Jennifer, so, Jennifer uses that one a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it's true. So I don't, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of friends that I just don't associate with anymore. Mm -hmm. I see them around town. I'm totally pleasant with them, but you won't find me hanging out with them for a long period of time. Um, I don't go to a lot of 
I don't go to a lot of bars. I don't go to a lot of, you know, there's a lot of lifeguard functions and lifeguarding while it is a really healthy lifestyle, they play hard. Right. So it's kind of that they train hard, they eat healthy. And then if they throw a lifeguard function party, they, they drink pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's probably pretty common in a lot of uh, public surface service in the public, in the public service kind of industry, firefighters, policemen, they, you know, that's they they decompress and that's their decompression style. And so I just kind of avoid those things. And, you know, thank God my wife's a hundred percent supportive of that. You know, she's never pressuring me to go out and go to these functions or go to this or go to that, you know, um, she knows my bandwidth with them, you know? So it's like, Oh, we got a school gala. I can handle that, you know? Um, but it's not like a constant weekend. Let's keep up with the Joneses and be at this party and that party and this party. Cause after a while, it just gets to be too much. You know, you're, you're sober and we were at one the other day and I was doing my best to make friends with these kids. Cause our kids, these, these adults, cause our kids are in the same school, you know? And, um, they started drinking pretty heavily and, and I'm sober and they get closer and closer to your face. And when you're sober and everyone's drunk, you can only take so, so much. And then it's like, I got to go. Like you guys are saying the same story over and over again. You get really close to my face. You're kind of starting to hug on me and hang on me. And, and I'm sober, man, you know, but you don't know this at that point. Cause you're, you're pretty sh- drunk yourself so um it's usually an early exit for us you know i i can't remember the last time i was out really past midnight what are what are you know now that you've been sober and on this path what are some of the gifts that that you feel have come into your life you know and on in the big book it talks about you know in page 83 and 84 they're referred to as the promises, those, uh-huh. those things that, that we, that seem to return to our lives, including, you know, just peace and serenity and, and then right relationships with the people we love. What, what's occurred? What, how has your life evolved since you've been sober from, you know, your family life, friendships, you're surfing because you just, you just ended up um, going down to Toto Santos, right? Or, or have you not gone yet for that? I haven't gone yet. Yeah. Um, I would have to say that first and foremost, for me, uh, one of the gifts is I have a relationship with God or a higher power. Um, and my spirituality is really important to me. I pray a lot. You know, I'm, I'm still somebody who says the serenity prayer <clears throat> upwards of 10 times a day. And, uh, <clears throat> pretty much every time I jump into the ocean, I say a, a pretty deep prayer. And <clears throat> when I go to bed at night, I'll say a deep prayer as well. And, uh, just through that prayer that I say, I'm constantly reminding myself of who I want to grow, grow into. Um, 
you know, it's God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can. Dear God, I, I pray that I could be a good husband, a good father, a good brother, a good son. I pray for my family, my friends, my acquaintances. I pray for those people that wish ill will upon me. Uh, and then I kind of go into the prayer of St. Francis, which I just, I love. I love um, that. So I instantly yeah. kind of say, you know, I, I pray that I can console rather than be consoled. I pray that I can understand rather than <clears throat> need, or that I can be understanding rather than needing to be understood. I pray where there's darkness, let there be light. I pray where there's war, let there be peace. I pray where there's hatred, let there be love. And that St. Francis part, the first part kind of reminds me of who I want to become. The second part kind of goes into getting outside of myself and making myself not so important. And then I always wrap it up. I, I say, I pray for honesty, willingness, integrity, humility, and discipline. Mm. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen. Mm. And uh, that prayer, you know, I, some version of that prayer I say once a day and it's a constant reminder for me of who I want to become. And then it's also me connecting with that higher power and the world at large. Yeah. And it feels like as small as I am, at least I'm thinking about the people that are out there that are going through hell. And I'll say that, even, you know, like, dear God, I pray you can give strength to those people that are suffering, those people that are in, actively in their alcoholism, in their addiction. I pray for those people that simply just don't have it as good as I am. I pray that I can be grateful for today. I'm grateful for this ocean. I'm grateful for my life. I pray for forgiveness of my sins. I know I've done wrongdoings. Um, so it's like a constant cleansing. It's almost like I'm rebaptizing my, myself every day. And uh, I found a lot of strength and confidence in that prayer. And now I've taken it to the point where I can share it with other people. And I I'm not, I'm not going to not share it and I'm not going to be scared to share it. Yeah. Where I think in, when, when I was drinking, I still had some spirituality, but I, um, I hid from it. Mm. Right. So I wouldn't let people know that there was that side of me. Now I'm okay saying, yeah, I'm a spiritual person. I pray a lot. Like I've, I've found serenity in my relationship with God. And I'd say that's my number one gift. And I go to church on Sundays, I go to meetings and um, practicing those baseline things, I, I feel are my greatest gifts. And then also being sober enough to where I recognize that I still have faults and I'm not perfect and that like I have a lot of things I need to work on and, and I'm not somebody who's going to deny it, right? I understand that there's things that, I do well and there's things that I don't do well and I'm trying to, to do better. And, and that's one of the things that I think has helped me tremendously in my relationships. Um, first and foremost with my wife, because I fall short all the time and I'll just blatantly admit it. Like, look, I'm not as good as you at paying the bills. And there's a few things that I struggle with around the house, but there are some things that I do really well. I'm going to continue to work on these things and, you know, I've made a significant change to get to this place and the rest of the change might come a little slower, but I do believe it, it will come. And I think the other thing that you touched on is that, that relationship as aspect where 
now I see my life as like, I view relationships as kind of the, the most important component of my life, right? Hold on a second. My wife's coming in from work right now. Hi, Kelly. I'm doing a podcast with Greg. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and and that's it that that relationship for me and then all the relationships that are outside of it my parents my siblings my friends and even to the point of going into my work and my my acquaintances at work and then the people that I see at work cuz I'm a lifeguard and I'm an oceanfront lifeguard and I work the beach 40 hours a week and I interact with all sorts of people we're a, we're a tourist destination we have a lot of locals we have uh sort of that pre-existing beach culture that's still there and every person i interact with i recognize is like gonna be a relationship even if it's on the smallest level right it's they're 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 gonna i'm gonna remember them and they're gonna remember me at some capacity and being sober, I can have those interactions and I'm authentic. I'm real with them and I, I'm not hiding anything. And I try and add value to whatever little situation that it is. I think those are like, I think those are the gifts. And then, I mean, for me, granted, I can make it through the next couple hours, you know, sober. My kids have never seen me intoxicated. Um, there's been times where we've had some non-alcoholic beers and Otto is getting, he's six, Pippa's four, Daisy's two. And Otto's kind of getting to the age now where he's starting to put things together and, uh, he'll ask about homeless people or, mm. you know, and, and he'll ask about beer and alcohol and what it is and what it does and, and he's, he's never seen me intoxicated. And I, I mean, I think that's a, a total blessing for yeah. him and I, I mean, we're still by no means is like parenting easy or am I doing it perfectly? I'm still, I still have a temper. I still get short. I still scream at my kids, my wife, whatever it may be. I still fall short. I'm a human. I'm imperfect. Um, but there is more ability for me to mend when I've fallen short because I can recognize it and I'm quicker to say sorry to those people that I, I snap on or, or I yell at or I treat wrong than to get defensive and kind of pull up and, and, and play victim of, of those relationships. Yeah. Well, as we we can we can probably start bringing the bringing the plane into the landing pattern, man. And mm -hmm. uh, but I I'm curious, you know, as you as you think of someone uh, that you might even know that is stuck in addiction or destructive patterns, what what would you offer? I. 
I'm, we talked, we, we talked about it and it's the pressure thing. And, and I would, I just, I've been there and I've helped people try and find their way to sobriety. And I always start off with saying like, give yourself forgiveness, alleviate the pressure, find your way and make it yours and do it the way that you want to do it so that it means something to you. And whether that means you have to relapse six times to get there, that's what it means. If, if it means that you get it the first try, that's, that's what it means. And it's, but don't put so much pressure on yourself to get through something that's, it's a long game. You know, it's, um, you turned me on to rich roll who you, you suggested reading that book roll on. And I ran a marathon after I read the book. Right. <laughs> and I think about it kind of like that, like those long endurance activities where if you put a lot of pressure on yourself in mile three, by the time you're, you know, in mile seven, eight, nine, ten, you could be already defeated and you yeah. still have another 16 miles to go. And then it's like, how are you? The more you defeat yourself in those journeys, the harder it is to kind of pick yourself up, and pick yourself yeah. up and pick yourself up. And it's, it's okay to, to have a little shame or guilt when you've done something wrong. I think that's healthy. And, and then you process it in the way that you need to process it. You don't come you don't put it in a compartment and lock it away. You kind of let it take its course, but by also like alleviating the pressure as you go, you know, and, and cry when you have to cry and smile when you need to smile, but um, make it yours and, and alleviate some of that pressure and, and embrace, embrace it because it is yours, hmm. you know, and, and you're doing it, you're doing it for yourself. And then as you do it for yourself, you'll, you'll see how it affects other people and it'll become bigger than you. And then you kind of, you can almost kind of let go of the wheel a little bit and let God or, or the higher power kind of direct you as hmm. to the direction that it needs to go. Yeah. I love it, man. Well, Roger, thank you for your time, my brother. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we're going to be seeing you next week. Yes, we will. Yeah. Fun. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, I uh, I just, I, I really appreciated getting to know you a little bit better. Part of your story I knew. And, mm -hmm. you know, to your willingness to be vulnerable and honest is, you know, the courage that, that comes into us to be willing to to be this vulnerable is, is a gift to so many people, Roger. And right. uh, yeah, we just keep giving what we've been given. Yes. You know? That's it. Cause if, if I don't have it, I, there's nothing for me to give. So. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reaching out. It, it's yeah. help, it helps to, <clears throat> it helps to tell the story. Right? Oh yeah. It's therapeutic yeah, and, and um, it, it, it off gases in a yeah. sense. It reminds me that I have come a long way and, yeah. um, and it kind of reassures that path and that direction. So I really appreciate you mm. reaching out to me and yeah, allowing me to it and be, yeah, you're, be a part you're, of this. You're so welcome, my brother. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank Take you, care. Greg. Love you. Yeah. I Take love care. you too, man. I trust you were inspired as Roger shared his valleys in his victories, walking the path 
of solid recovery and being in service in this life. I really want to thank Trevor Hall for permission to use his song, Blue Sky Mind, as our intro. And then my dear friend, Jay Pinto, for our outro music. We breathe the same air. And then I want to end by reminding you, as I did in the intro, that Shriponia's beginning a healing circle at becomingaheart.org beginning January 11th at 6 p.m. We'll be gathering in circle to support one another as we walk an authentic life of recovery and service and love.